I think we have, and I'm going to make a bold statement that might be controversial to your, to your listeners, uh, that I think we have been, many of us within the church have been conditioned to see the faith only as logos and not as mythos. And so I think that part of, uh, the liturgical traditions, part of what the liturgical traditions can offer us is an entry into it, that kind of mythos story formed way of experiencing the faith. Hey friends, it's Andrew and John for Into the Harvest. Our mission is to inspire and resource God's people to live the ancient faith in modern life. We want you to be a disciple and make disciples of Jesus in every nook and cranny of the world that we live in. 2023 has been a great year of growth for this ministry, and we've got big plans for 2024. So we're here today asking for your help. Our year-end fundraiser is happening now, and you can help us finish strong and launch us into the new year. If you believe in this work and it's helped you this year, would you consider making a donation today? There's a link in the show notes to this episode and every gift matters. So thanks for being part of our community and helping grow this mission. Heidi White, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm so excited to be here, Andrew. Thank you. This episode, we're recording a little earlier in November, but this episode is going to release at the very end of the month, just before Advent kicks off. And we're going to have a conversation about Advent and Epiphany, but maybe more particularly how liturgy can help shape our Christmas celebration and help us stay focused on Jesus. So um, I think you've got some insights that can really benefit me and our listening audience. But maybe just to get us started, um, can you tell us what is liturgy and why does it matter? Man, that's such a great question. Uh, liturgy comes from the Greek. That's a word that means the work of the people. Uh, and one of the things that I really love about the liturgical life, the liturgical vision of the faith and of our lives uh, is uh, something that has been Think, I think I might venture to say a vision for the faith uh, that is being recovered in our generation, but has been maybe forgotten, lost a little bit along the way. Uh, since the Protestant Reformation, we've had a, an emphasis, rightly so, on the self, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's right. That's good. We must have that. But we also, uh, for the benefit of our souls and for our salvation, we need a communal relationship with the church. Uh, and, and that communal relationship goes beyond. There's a different way of worshiping in community than we have uh, in, in our personal relationship with Christ. And that, that communal worship towards the, that, that lifting of the heart to God, one way to do that is through liturgy. That's why it's the work of the people. It's a communal vision of the faith, something that we share in. Uh, all churches have liturgy, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, all Christian traditions have a liturgy. Uh, the liturgy of coming together, sometimes, you know, in, in, in our contemporary times, that might be the liturgy of getting a coffee uh, in the coffee bar out in the out in the foyer and chatting and shaking hands uh, at, in a moment in the, in the service and 
have a, a rock band or and then a, a sermon, right? That hmm. is in itself a liturgy. Um, and whereas more traditional, uh, more uh, more traditional uh, Christian traditions might have um, a mass or hmm. a divine liturgy, as we have in the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, that's more formalized. Um, and but either way, it's a liturgical experience with. The church that reaches communally towards Christ, and that's what we mean when we talk about liturgy. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I don't know that I had ever heard that that the translation is literally the work of the people. So it's it's God's people coming together to refocus themselves around Him and His truth and His purposes for this world. Um, you know what what do we miss if we don't understand liturgy or we don't participate in this in this work of the people yeah i think we miss so much and i i'm i'm a gen xer andrew i was born in 1979 and and i was raised in a really strong devout evangelical home Uh, and when i hit about the teen years and my college years there seemed to be this from what i noticed this kind of movement away from church. Like I can be a Christian on my own away from church. I feel closer to God on a walk in the woods than I do in the church. Uh, and, and I remember having many conversations with friends and pastors around that time, uh, about what is the purpose of church? What is church for? Right. Right. And, uh, and what if, what if I feel, feel closer to God on my own than I do within the church? Uh, and, and I think the liturgical traditions can offer a compelling framework for understanding what the purpose of church is, uh, mm-hmm. that the faith is communal as much as it is individual. And it's always been understood that way over the course of Christian tradition. Uh, and, and when we gather together, uh, we are able to offer to God a sacrifice of praise that is uniting to the church. And this I think goes back to as, uh, even as early as the Passover, uh, when the uh, when the Israelites were being led out of Egypt, where they were being oppressed um, and enslaved and brought into the Promised Land, uh, the Passover brings the people of God together within a home under the lintels of the door, which are covered or slathered in blood, right? Uh, the blood of the Lamb, uh, and and what's interesting about that is that there's nothing necessarily individual or personal in that experience. And I'm not dismissing the individual and the personal, but I'm saying that in the Passover tradition, the requirement from God was to come into the house under the blood and just being there in the presence of, of the community under the blood of the, the blood of the lamb in the door, being inside that church is a picture, a type, an analog to the church now. Hmm. Uh, and there is something so powerful about gathering together as a community for the purpose of worship uh, that does something to our souls uh, and to our spirits that does not happen even in the most powerful individual experience with God. And we need to have both. Uh, and, and, and liturgy is a way to enter into the presence of God communally, share with a shared custom of worship, um, shared prayers, um, a shared uh, church calendar, uh, a, 
a shared experience of the faith that unites us uh, and then fortifies us for those other individual experiences with God that are so important and formative to the faith as well. You know, you mentioned earlier that the one of the modern approaches to life or uh, emphasis that we have is on the individual. And I think that's certainly been true within our churches here in the West in America. I think another one that we see that maybe we're not even aware of, but it's it's the disembodied nature of faith or we, we tend to think of faith as something that's, you know, esoteric and internal, spiritual, unseen, and maybe even dismiss any external component to the practice of faith or the development of our faith. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Samuel James. He wrote a book called Digital Liturgies, and we had him on the show earlier this year. I really appreciate it. He compared liturgy to going to the mall. And his point was, you know, when you you're entering a space, a physical space, and everything in that space is designed to affect you, to change the way you think, to change what you desire, uh, and to to pull you in the direction that the store owners and the mall operators want you to live. And all, all we're saying with liturgy is that that has that that's true like that's part of how we function as humans is that we are affected by the externals and so a, a liturgy that is ordered to point us towards god appreciates the externalities that that like you just described with the passover that there were there were physical um expectations and prescriptions that god's people were to follow because it was going to actually shape them on the inside and so i think that's um that's kind of a dimension of faith that we also sometimes struggle with as moderns to appreciate that we are being influenced and we can be purposeful about ordering our liturgy, ordering those external spaces and activities. So I, I think, um, help me out because I definitely come from a low church background, but I think that's when we talk about liturgy, I don't want people to kind of get lost in the word. Um, but we're really talking about purposely ordering the space that you put yourself in the people you put yourself around and the activities that you engage in so that you're reordered to see the world the way God sees it and to be um, to, to value the things that he values. Would that be accurate or what would you add to that? Yeah, I think that's beautiful, Andrew. I think that's right. Uh, I would take it even a step further and say that the, I, I really like the mall liturgy thing. There are liturgies that we, like we know the liturgy of how to order at Starbucks, right? Like an outsider does it. It's like you get somebody right. from Europe and they're like, I have no idea how to order coffee in this crazy place, right? Uh, but there's, there's a liturgical aspect of that. Um, Christmas shopping, all the things that you're mentioning. Uh, the step further that I would take is that those things are a worldly pale shadow of the true liturgy that is continually taking place in the heavenly places. And that's what we're told in the Holy Scriptures, is that when we enter into the kingdom, we will be in the presence of true worship in the temple of God. And, and when God gave Moses the pattern of the temple on the mountain, he told him, this is a copy or a shadow of the heavenly temple. And so what we have within the church uh, is the true liturgy, the capital L liturgy, and all of these other things that we have, how to order coffee at Starbucks, how to go to the mall, how to pay our taxes, right? How to have people over for dinner. Um, mm -hmm. I always say fine when someone asks me how I'm doing, even if I'm not fine. I'm not lying. That's just a liturgical interaction, right? And 
And that is, those things are the pale shadows of the true thing. And as Christians, we always want the true thing. Our hearts ought to be yearning for the real, the capital R, real. If you, you know, remember the story of the Velveteen Rabbit when you were a little boy, right? Such a wonderful story, a powerful story. That picture book needs to be in every Christian home. <laughs> that we are, we are, we are now not real rabbits, so to speak. But someday we will be, we will be, mm. we will be given our mm. true self. And in our true self, we will worship in spirit and in truth, liturgically in heaven together, united. Um, in the true temple. And so what we need, what we do as Christians here on earth ought to reach for that, right? Um, and, and so it isn't that the church is like Starbucks. It's that Starbucks does is like this pale, like nothing compared to the true thing. And that's what we're continually reaching our hearts towards and ordering our life around. Now, we kind of jumped right into liturgy and uh, we wanted to do that because I want to come back and give you a chance just to tell us a little bit more about your own personal faith journey, because this this more traditional approach to faith mm-hmm. uh, and a more traditional litur- liturgical expression of it is not something that's always been true for you. So maybe give right. us a, a sketch outline of your own journey. You're part of the Eastern Orthodox Church now, but mm-hmm. haven't always been. What led to that and what does life and ministry look like for you these days? That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, I was raised in a really devout evangelical home. Like I said, my parents are first-generation Christians. Uh, neither of them were raised uh, in faithful in faith-filled homes. Um, and they, uh, my dad became a Christian in college, and my mom in high school. Uh, and um, and so I am so grateful for their faith and their formation. They were so intentional as Christian parents. Uh, we were in church every time the doors were opened. I grew up in Iwanis. Um, they were just amazing Christian parents. Uh, and I'm so, so grateful. And so my journey to a more, to, to the Eastern Orthodox Church, for me, uh, has, has never felt like I'm choosing this tradition because there was something wrong with the old way. For me, it was always I loved God with my whole heart, and I wanted to go as deeply into a fully embodied experience of faith as I possibly could. And that's what you were talking about earlier, Andrew, uh, that the external things of our lives can reflect the internal reality. When we talk about worship, uh, worship doesn't just have to be something that takes place inside me. I can enter into it in an external reality as well. Uh, And... Um, and so I, I think probably through my own failure and a need for repentance, I grew up with this kind of, I might call a Gnostic vision of worship in which I felt like my, there's, my body didn't really have anything to do in worshiping God. It was all kind of this internal experience and chasing, um, you know, I was always told faith isn't an emotional experience. And I believe that that's true. But I didn't know any other way to kind of feel, I'm using air quotes here, your listeners can't necessarily see that, but feel close to God. Um, And so I I wanted, I longed for uh, a a space, a physical embodiment of of my internal devotion to God. Uh, And um, so we... 
when my kids were, and part of this had to do, part of my faith journey also had to do with homeschooling. You and I were talking before we pushed record off the air. We were talking about uh, my homeschooling journey and how I became, how I began classically educating my kids when they were young. Um, and as I was reading all of these old classics, right? I was reading Plato's Republic. I was reading Dante. I was reading Shakespeare. Um, and, um, and, and as I was reading, I kept thinking to myself, and this is no indictment. This is just my experience. I was thinking it cannot be that the secular tradition is more beautiful than the Christian mm. tradition. And at the time we were going to church in a strip mall right. and, uh, uh, and, and I, I had this longing for beauty that was awakened by how I was teaching my children. And I wanted to give them this experience of beauty. And I kept thinking, it just really can't be that, that, that the church is good and true, but not beautiful. How can that be? And the books I was buying at the Christian bookstore were written at an eighth grade reading level. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and kind of recycling some of the same ideas and I wanted depth, right? I wanted meat, uh, as the scripture says. Um, and so, uh, my husband and I, we went to England for work. He would, he was traveling out there. Uh, and, and while we were there, we would travel around on the weekends when he wasn't working and go see stuff, right? To sightsee. Uh, and we went to Durham Cathedral one weekend. Uh, have you ever been to England, Andrew? I have not. I would love okay. to go. Please go someday. So <laughs> Durham Cathedral is one of the fortunate uh, buildings that was not destroyed by either Henry VIII or Oliver Cromwell uh, during some upheavals in English history. So it's still standing. It's still completely intact, whereas many uh, of, of the churches and cathedrals were were bombed or or. or leveled. Uh, so, but it's a medieval cathedral, not a Gothic cathedral. So it's really low and it has small windows, kind of dark. And it has like a, it's a little bit like chilly inside, but it has this very like heavy kind of holy feeling to it. It envelops you when you walk in. Uh, and so we were there just as sightseers, but there was an even song service uh, going on at the time. And so there's a boys choir and they were wearing like the white robes with the red crosses, just like you imagine singing these beautiful hymns in Latin. Uh, and, and it was so beautiful. I just, and there's candles everywhere. It was dark. Uh, and I was wandering around just like wow, this is so beautiful. This is my faith. Like, this is my tradition. I've never seen anything or experienced anything like this. And this just happens every day, whether I'm here or not, right? Um, and that was so moving to me. And then there was a, I, I wandered into this little like corner room that was a, a shrine. There was a, a saint buried there. I think Saint Cademan, sound like an English saint. Um, and there's a woman there and she had a crippled hand and she was weeping at the tomb of the saint and she was trying to light a candle. Uh, and I later learned that those are prayer, like the candles you would light um, are like these lights of God, prayers lifted up to God. Uh, and um, and it was so moving to me watching her have this embodied experience of prayer in a beautiful place. Uh, and, and when she, maybe she couldn't pray for herself, she was very emotional. But the church was praying for her, praying with her, surrounding her with these prayers. Uh, and and I was I was so overwhelmed by this experience. And I was like, what's this? 
what's this thing happening right here? I want to know more about this and I want to be a part of this. Uh, and so I talked uh, to my husband about it. And so at that point, that began our family's journey towards the liturgical tradition. And then we were reading and visiting and um, we uh, we went to an Anglican church in, uh, here in Colorado Springs for six years. Beautiful experience like um, this, this lovely liturgical life. That's where we started uh, our Advent traditions that we I know you want to talk about that today. Yeah. Uh, and um, and that's where we learned about the church calendar and the church prayers and the feasting and the fasting of the church. Uh, but after a while, we just wanted to go even deeper. Um, we wanted to go as deeply as we could. Uh, and so at that point, um, we uh, I knew some some people I was working with in, in the classical education renewal uh, who were um, Orthodox. And so we began talking about that. I was reading Russian literature um, and it was it was there's such a unity of of goodness truth and beauty and a rich intellectual and mystical tradition within the church and and that was that that's as far as you can go into the liturgical life and so that's where we've ended up so again like i said it's never felt like we're choosing this over that as much as we're just going deeper and deeper and deeper uh, uh into the full historical reality of the mystical church and that's where we are today so we're now Eastern Orthodox converts, which is a pretty small community in America. Hardly anybody knows about it. So it's it exciting is. to be a part of that. Even though it's old, it also feels new. <laughs> I've got some resources I'll put in the show notes and in the YouTube description link. If if folks want to learn more about church history, you know, Eastern Orthodox that really came out of the first major church split that happened right around 1000 AD, where the the Pope and the Catholic Church basically split with, uh, you can help me out with this, the, the, the Bishop of Constantinople, I believe. And mm -hmm. so the Eastern Orthodox Church were, were really the churches that you'll find all over, um, you, you know, Russia and basically east of Italy. <laughs> There's a lot of That's Eastern correct. Orthodox tradition. Mm -hmm. But for many of us uh, here in America, because we come out of, many of us come out of a European background. So the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is much more dominant here. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. I've got this working um, theory that Go you on. Know, <laughs> we're, I'm interested. We're, we're made up of body, um, uh, spirit, and mind. So if we think of ourselves as, as being all three of those things, it seems to me that a lot of times our church traditions appeal to one of those three uh, biases or elements of who we are. So I think for many people who are drawn to a more reformed expression of church, it's really focused on the mind and doctrine, what makes sense, good teaching, good exposition. Um, if you tend to be more uh, charismatic, I think that's really something that appeals to the, the spirit dimension of who we are, that we know that there's more than just facts and figures and this physical world, there's a, there's a spiritual uh, dimension to life and that appeals to us. So the charismatics tend to, to orient more around the spirit. And then I think that high church, whether that's uh, the Catholic expression or Eastern Orthodox has a greater appreciation for that body or that material dimension of humanity and, and how that affects and flavors the rest of who we are. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, 
part of what I think as we get into this conversation about Advent, it's really going to orient around a lot of physical ways of inhabiting the story. And I know that's a phrase I've, I've heard you use. What, uh, what do you mean by inhabiting the story? How would you expound on that phrase and what the average American might be missing, the, the average American believer might be missing by, by not inhabiting the story? Yeah. So our faith is, 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 propositionally true. It's objectively true. We believe that as Christians. Uh, that's part of the Nicene Creed, right? The historical statement of faith that this is this is the true thing that actually happened. And because of that, it's reasonable and rational, right? And our lives ought to be organized rationally around the objective and propositional truth of, the, of Christianity. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, it's also that it's also a story. It's a narrative, Right. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to wonder, I used to lay in bed and wonder why Jesus didn't die as a baby. Thought, well, if he was just born, why did he have to live? Why not just be born and then die for our sins? If that's the whole point, if the whole point of his death is his death and mm. resurrection, why not just why live to be an adult? And then I also used to wonder, why don't Christians commit suicide? Once we're saved. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. And and I, I, I couldn't find a compelling answer to that until I realized this element of story is so important mm -hmm. that that Christ had to be an adult man when he died. And I have to continue to live in this fallen world, even as a Christian going into heaven, because because Christ came to show us what it means to be truly human, to give us a narrative example of true humanity so that we can imitate him. Right. That's uh, in, in ancient mm. terms, that word imitation is mimesis. Right. There's this mimetic teachings that Christ gives us, this imitative teaching. He shows us how to live as humans and then we follow. Uh, and we're very story driven people. Uh, right. We want to imitate and enter into the full story of what it means to be human. Uh, and so uh, I, what I have I have a friend named David Hicks who wrote a fantastic book about education Um called norms and nobility. And in it, he argues that there are two streams or ways of knowing, like really knowing, like, you know, that, like I know in my knower kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and those two streams of knowing, he, he calls them logos and mythos, which comes from ancient Greek words. Uh, and logos is this propositional, rational way of knowing. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and on the other hand, another way of knowing, really knowing is mm -hmm. mythos, which just means story. Mythos just means story. So there's right. a story formed imaginative way of knowing. C.S. Lewis said that uh, uh, that reason is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And I love that. Uh, and so we need to have meaning making stories uh, that inform us and tell us who we are, who God is and what it means to be human. Uh, and Christianity does that. That's why Christ tells so many parables. That's why we have a whole uh, we have a whole tradition and history of Bible stories. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think that we approach that uh, sometimes with such a logocentric vision, right, that like we'll 
will read something like the uh, the story of Jonah and the whale. And the thing we want to know is, was that a literal whale? And did he get swallowed? And was it a fish? And like, can that be really, can it be true? Right. And I'm putting that in air quotes, right? Whereas Christ interpreted that story to his disciples as a story, as a mythos, right? Mm-hmm. What he says to them is, I'm going to die and come back in three days. That is the sign of Jonah. And so if you're only approaching the faith with this kind of logocentric, rational vision, you're missing out on this whole other way of knowing God uh, and and entering into what it means to be a follower of Christ, which is I, too, I, too, will be Jonah. I will have to die to myself and to my sins and to my expectations. And then it will be given back to me. I'll be raised along with Christ, right? So many of the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament stories uh, as as these types or analogies uh, to to the spiritual life. Um, And that doesn't dismiss the logos, the rational way of knowing. But I think we have, I think we have, and I'm going to make a bold statement that might be controversial to your your listeners, uh, that I think we have have been many of us within the church have been conditioned to see the faith only as logos and not as mythos. And so I think that part of uh, the liturgical traditions, part of what the liturgical traditions can offer us is an entry into it, that kind of mythos story formed way of experiencing the faith. Uh, in, in an embodied sense, as you said, um, you know, for example, within the Eastern Orthodox Church, we believe that communion doesn't just mean something, it does something. And that's very controversial over the centuries. And so I'm not here to take necessarily a theological stand on that or debate that in any way, as much as to present there is another way of looking at many things within the faith uh, that that are that are story formed, not just rationally understood. Uh, and, and part of entering into, to, uh, part of experiencing, you know, lighting candles for Advent, for example, with the, with the dim lights is such a story formed way of seeing the light of the world. Um, that when I light a candle in the darkness of my home, I am creating a holy experience by look by, by through that lighted candle in my home, seeing the light of Christ in the darkness of this fallen world. And that's yet another way to worship him, not just to read it in a disembodied way in John chapter one, but to see it in my home with a tiny little beeswax candle in a dark room. Uh, and and that can, uh, that's another way of knitting our souls to Christ. I think what I hope people are hearing is that there's, there's ways to enrich uh, our experience of faith and our practice of faith. And I know you've said this several times already in this conversation, but it's it's not to to pit one tradition against the other, but to say That's is right. there are there elements that we're perhaps missing from our experience and practice of faith that could enrich and help us enter into the story more fully. I think this is one of the reasons, you know, just what you were sharing there uh, with your friend and you know, the the book on logos and mythos. What was the title of that again? Norms and Nobility by David Hicks. Yeah, we'll try to link that in the show notes as well, if folks. Um, but I think this is one of the reasons why Jordan Peterson has had such an influence, especially among even among believers and among those who are nominal Christians, is because he's tapping into that mythos. And for many people, they, they haven't even experienced that dimension of scriptures and of, of Christian tradition and faith because we are so 
a bias towards the, the, the logo side of things. Again, I think that was, for many of us, that's um, an outcome of the Protestant Reformation. And the um, Enlightenment, for and sure. And the Enlightenment. So it's, it's exciting that we can re-engage that. And I, I think to know that that's not a Jordan, Pe he's not discovering something new. <laughs> he's just, right. uh, he's presenting something to us as American Christians that has always been part of church tradition, but we may not have been aware of it. And we really want to, to, to base that on Orthodox um, Christian interpretations of those myths versus, you know, more secular. Um, I think sometimes the interpretations that uh, Dr. Peterson comes up with are, are definitely, um, they're very interesting, but I don't know that they're, that they're always in line with uh, historic Christian beliefs. Right. So, That's um, true, because I think with, with Jordan Peterson, who's wonderful, mm -hmm. the, the, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's a closet Christian, right? right. Um, uh, and I, but who knows, pray for him, right? Pray mm -hmm. for, I actually pray for him often. Um, mm -hmm. But one of his good friends is Jonathan Pajot. Uh, yes. And um, Jonathan Pajot is Orthodox. Um, right. And he's an iconographer. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and a, and he does a lot of work with symbology and stories. Uh, he's an incredible man. Um, and, but one of the things that I've heard Pajot argue with, in a, you know, in a friendly way, um, with with Jordan Peterson is this question of logos and mythos because the other side of this, and something that I think that I've I have I know I've heard Dr. Peterson fall into this, is the other way the other pitfall is instead of seeing the faith as logos and not mythos, another pitfall is seeing it as mythos and not logos, right? right. And I think in many ways uh, that's what Jordan Peterson he invites us to see right. the faith as mythos, yes. but he doesn't he has not yet publicly gone all the way and said it is also rationally and objectively right. true yeah and that's what we right. offered the, uh, yeah. that's what we're offering here is it is exactly. both christianity is both rational and imaginative mm -hmm. it is both beautiful and true and mm -hmm. and that unified vision for reality not just the faith but for all of reality and the way of being in the world is what christians have to offer to this bereft Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age that is so, it's a wasteland. Mm -hmm. And we can, we come in and say, no, we have, we, this is good, true and beautiful. This is the thing that you all have been looking for. It's not just metaphorical and it's not just dry and propositional. It's both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, Jesus is more than just an archetype, the chief archetype figure. He's also yes. a real person. He is a historical figure. He is everything that the scriptures declare him to be. And so, um, but yes, I, I, I love that. There's almost, when I hear you describing this, this whole idea of mythos, it's, there's almost a pageantry. I don't know mm. if that's the right word, but there's almost a pageantry to yeah. the, the story of faith. And you see this, I think, with Jesus. Oftentimes, something seeming, seemingly insignificant will happen. You know, why did they divide Jesus's clothes? And, and. The, the authors or Jesus himself will sometimes say this, this has happened to fulfill the scripture. And so there is this, this play that is taking place across history that, that God is telling this story that God is telling. And there are these dimensions that we might look at and say, well, that's not really an important detail, but it gets worked into the story. Um, and, and our lives get worked into the story as well. So, um, let's dive into Advent and Epiphany. Now, I became aware of Advent probably 
15 years ago. It's not something that I grew up with. And Me I actually came across it. We were ministering to mili military families and we were actually part of the military chapel service, which is kind of a hybrid between a, a traditional church and and something that's much more transient. But one of the things that happens is you you get you get pieces of all kinds of different traditions. And so um, and it's usually driven by who the the lead chaplain is over that particular facility mm -hmm. and service. And so it must have been someone who had more of a, a liturgical background because they began to practice Advent. And at the time, our children were still pretty young. We loved it. Like you said, it was such a great way to to enter into the story and to really keep it focused on Jesus and the whole the the whole um, purpose of the incarnation. Also, it. it it extended the Christmas season for us because Christmas was basically just something that, you know, the trigger for us was Thanksgiving. When Thanksgiving's over, Christmas season starts. But traditionally, Advent has really been, had nothing to do with, with the Thanksgiving holiday here in America. There was a, a lead up to uh, Christmas, the, the, you know, the Mass of Christ um, celebration. I want to get into that. I don't want to uh, string people along too long here, but uh, could you quickly just run us through the liturgical calendar? Now, so don't feel uh, overwhelmed by yeah. this, but but as I understand it, and then let me just throw it out and you can correct it. As I understand it, historically, the church has had a, a calendar, a liturgical calendar that walks you through the life of Christ throughout the year. And so Correct. Advent is part of that. It's but it's not a standalone thing. And then you've got you've got Epiphany, you've got Lent. So I'm quickly getting out of my depth. So if you could just, you know, build on that and help our listeners understand this whole idea of a calendar and and its yeah. place in the church. I really love that question because this is an embodied example of what I mean when we when I talk about uh, inhabiting the story. Uh, I get really excited about kind of the loftiness of that. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, that means something very real within the church, something embodied, something that we do, not just something we believe in. Um, and so uh, the church calendar in the West begins with Advent uh, and Advent uh is and is a longing or a waiting and entering really into Mary's story. It begins with uh, with a liturgical remembrance of the Annunciation when the angel comes to Mary and tells her, "You are going to bear a son," and she responds with her, you know, what we call um, in our tradition the divine yes. When she says, you know, behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. And then that divine yes, according to the church fathers, undoes the curse of Eve, who said no to God. Um, so just as the curse came through a woman in the Garden of Eden, so the healing comes through the uh, the ascent of a woman um, in in the season of Advent at the Annunciation, um, which is one of the reasons why the liturgical traditions hold Mary to be an example um, and and revere her so highly as the first Christian. Um, because in that moment, she becomes the first Christian, the first mm -hmm. true Christian. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so Advent begins with the Annunciation. And then we uh, 
And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, we fast beginning of Advent and actually Advent for us begins today. Um, So we, yeah, so we're, we're just a little bit different in the East than in the West on, but the calendar is similar. Uh, So we fast from meat and dairy. We eat vegan for six weeks until Christmas um, as a way of participating in the longing for Christ to be born in the world. We bear in our bodies with a small sacrifice uh, what what, for the life of Christ and for the longing and the waiting um, as we long for food, as we long for meat, right? Um, So the whole world yearns and groans for Christ to be born. Um, and, uh, and so, and, but that's for most Christians, um, that that's not necessarily, that fasting is not necessarily part of it. I say that to bring it up in the, in the sense of this is what we mean by physically inhabiting the story. It's not just this lofty thought. It's a daily gritty, everyday concrete reality, um, within the church calendar. Um, and everything is meaningful. Right. And this is why Lewis says that imagination is the organ of meaning. Right. Um, Because in my again, with my longing for food, I am then transformed that longing into a longing for Christ. And it's a small way I can bear and participate in his life. Right. And then that creates a meaningful kind of knitting of my body and soul to Christ every year as a yearly tradition. Um, But for most Christians in the West, what we do with with Advent is kind of a daily devotional um, when we like I said, that kind of dim the lights and light a candle. And there's many devotionals that are available for this. There's lots and lots of resources for this, especially for families. If you have children, which we always did this with our kids. Um, and uh, so after dinner, we would gather together as a family. We'd eat together with the lights dimmed like a little bit in the Advent candles that we'd already lit from the days before. We'd light them and eat dinner together. And then afterwards, we'd say a prayer um, and read a devotional together. Uh, and um, and I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are, with the Jesse Tree devotional, which is my always my recommendation for Advent families. Um, and it's a wonderful tradition uh, in which we you go through the whole Old Testament, like an Old Testament story uh, beginning either... You know, you can begin 40 days before, like we do um, Mm -hmm. November 15th, or you can begin December 1st. There's lots of resources. These are what this is one of those things that you just go to the Internet and Google like (laughs) 40 day Jesse Tree devotional Anglican, 40 day Jesse Tree devotional Protestant, whatever. Um, And um, and and you can buy a resource um, or you can even find them online. Um, And so every day, light the candle and then read a little devotional, say a prayer together as a family. And then there's a story for each day. So the first day would be like Adam and Eve in the garden or the, 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 seven day creation. The next day would be Adam and Eve in the garden. And then you go all the way through multiple stories in the old Testament that have, um, foreshadowing or prophetic looking forward to Christ. Um, and, uh, and it's a wonderful way to go through the entire scriptural story with your kids, with your family. And there are ones for adults too, if you don't have kids in your home. Um, and so every day there's just this kind of entrance into how God has shaped and planned the story of the world. Um, even the name history, his story, like it is his story and the history of our faith, the history of the Israelites, the history of the church, um, ending and culminating with the birth of Christ uh, in the final devotional on Christmas day. And every day, 
day, you just light a little candle. Um, and for, for us, we did it for in like 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And if we missed one, we would just do two the next day. Um, and right. so it's a very simple addition, a small investment, a little book or some time online printing, um, and, uh, and some candles. And a little bit of time every day. Um, one other thing with the Jesse tree is called a Jesse tree because you can buy little ornaments that have like a picture of that story. Um, and then you hang little ornaments on the tree. Um, uh-huh. We had like a, a wooden cross that we would hang ours on when our kids were little. And so every day they would see kind of this unfolding story um, with multiple images, you know, beautiful images of, of, of Bible stories kind of culminating in the cross, right? Uh, uh-huh. Or in the incarnation incarnation that's going to, of course, lead to the cross at Easter, which is a few months later. Um, and, and so that is a wonderful way to celebrate Advent as a family. It's simple, it's low investment, a very high yield kind of spiritual formation. We, yeah, uh, we basically kind of had a hybrid of different ideas over the years, yeah. but definitely I would encourage folks, uh, especially if you have young children, um, school-age children, to invest in the advent wreath where you've got Mm. the candles and each candle represents a a certain aspect of the story. And so, um, you know, you light one candle per week, basically you may be celebrating or observing advent every day, but you're going to light the same candle. And then over the course of the weeks leading up to Christmas, eventually you have all the candles going. Um, it is, it is, it is significant. And it, again, it points us back to, participating in the story in a way that keeps us centered on Jesus and what the story is really all about. You know, Christmas for most of us here in America has been a celebration of excess. Right. Um, and I see it in my own life. Like, even though I'm aware of it, it's you just, know, Lord have it's mercy a time us, right? <laughs> you just sort of let yourself go and you enjoy it. It's the end of the year. Um, and so when I first, I, I didn't know that Advent, like for you in the Eastern Orthodox, it's a time of fasting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a time of deprivation, purposefully uh, going without, which which was, I just learned that in the past few months. <laughs> so that was a, a new insight, uh, which I think is, it, you don't have to do that, but it's just, it's just an example of how we can be purposeful about reclaiming this season uh, so that it actually centers us on Jesus and, and the true story. I'm curious, uh, this is as much for me as anyone listening, you know, how does Epiphany fit in? And then, mm. yeah, I guess just like for Advent, there's this time of, for you all, a time of doing without, of um, going without meat and dairy. That ends, does that end on Christmas itself or how on does that Christmas work? Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas Day. So we have a big Christmas brunch and we are bringing it on, right? There's bacon and this like creme brulee French toast. We're like counting on the days so we can so we can eat and celebrate. Like that's the feast. Once Christ is born, we feast. Uh, and um, and then we have uh, several another week until January 6th, which is Epiphany, um, or we call it Theophany in the Eastern Church, but it's, I mean, it's the same celebration. Um, and the Epiphany celebration is associated with two stories from Christ's life, depending on your tradition. The first is the three wise men. Um, and, uh, 
And the second is Jesus's baptism. So both of those stories are associated liturgically with Epiphany. Uh, and they and for the same reason, it's because that is when the uh, when when Christ's presence, like the birth of Christ, um, goes beyond the domestic into the public. That's when you see him as uh, he's revealed, right? Uh, the right. epiphany, right? That's the there, that's mm. the word. Theophany means the same thing. Theophany is uh, um, is Greek for a revelation of God, mm. um, and so that's that. With Epiphany, then, we see that Christ is God and he's given to the world beyond his family to us um, in order to be a part of his fully embodied human life from that point on. And so that is the that's the purpose of Epiphany. That's the liturgical celebration that we that we into. It's another big feast. Um, and uh, between uh, Christmas and uh, Epiphany, that is uh, a time of feasting and joy. Um, again, another feast on epiphany so it's just like this long celebration the feast after the fast and you know there's something very human about that right like that idea of the undulations of deprivation and then and then fulfillment um that's what pregnancy is and that's why pregnancy is so celebrated in scripture right and compared to the spiritual life like that creation is groaning and longing for the sons of god to be revealed um that the old testament uh speaks of the travail um of, uh, of, of, of the people of God as being like a pregnancy that then there will, but when, when the baby is laid in your arms, you forget, you forget all of the sacrifices, you forget all of the pain and it was more than worth it. Right. And that is the story of our faith. Someday we're going to, you know, open our eyes and see Christ's faith. And, and, and this world will seem like a long travail, <laughs> a long giving birth to the true life. And, and that is kind of the, the spiritual reality of, of nativity or of advent, um, that we, we enter into these traditions because of that, because we are participating in, um, in the groaning and the travail that Mary lived out like very physically and we do spiritually. This kind of fits with a larger, um, reality, I think of modern life, which is we just live in an age of abundance. And so, yes. Uh, it's just, we could feast all the time and many of us do, but when, when we choose to opt out of that purposely, when we, when we go into these seasons of, of fasting, um, it actually helps us, like you said, enter the story and reconnect with, with what God is doing and celebrate it at, at a different level so that when the feast does come, it, it means something significant. And so I like the idea of abstaining from something um, in your tradition, it's meat and dairy. Uh, but I think it could be different things for, for us as we enter into this Christmas season, this Advent season. Maybe that's something that folks can think about is what's, what's one way that I can abstain from an activity or a food that I typically consume, but for the purpose of connecting that to, you know, tethering that to this longing for Christ, this longing for, for God to come into the world, which is what we're really celebrating um, in the Christmas season. Well, this has been a great conversation, Heidi. I really appreciate it. I hope people, I've kind of been on this journey personally, um, and, and the deeper you go, the more you see just the beauty, like you said, of the story that God is telling and the different dimensions that, that we can enter into it. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Any last thoughts that you would have for folks that might be, this might be the first year that they 
um, observe Advent, any, any gateway resources or practices that if you're just getting started, keep it simple. I know you mentioned the Jesse tree, which is great. I hope folks will, will check that out, but any other resources or practices that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I want to give a really practical Advent resource uh, that's very beautiful as well. I'm a big believer in beauty. I'm sure you can hear that. Uh, and this is from Anne Boskamp. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Um, she's an incredible uh, woman. She's mentored many women in homeschooling and the spiritual life. Um, and she has an Advent devotional called The Greatest Gift that's for children. Uh, and then she has an adult one uh, called The Greatest Christmas. Uh, and they're really lovely, like beautiful uh, and easy to use. And then you can, she also has other resources. Uh, she has Jesse Tree ornaments. And as you brought up the wreath, like she's got these beautiful, like mm-hmm. hand-carved wreaths. Um, and by the time this podcast goes up, um, it's right at... Uh, it's right at Advent. And so it's one of those, you can get the books on Amazon if you really have to, but we always try to support, um, authors by ordering it directly through them, but you know, just throw it on your Amazon list and you can get it in two days. Um, uh, yeah, so that one's a really, and that one is, uh, it's very ecumenical. So no matter what Christian tradition you're coming from, it's, this is like very, like a mere Christianity, like any Christian, uh, can, can just really thrive and flourish with this Advent resource. So that's my number one recommendation for that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I will try to, um, find links for that to provide it in the show notes of this as well. Any, any way that you would want folks, are there ways that folks can connect with what you're doing? I know that you do write and edit, um, so any, anywhere that we can direct folks if they want to follow your work? Yeah. If you want to hear more from me, you can find me at the Close Reads podcast. Uh, and that's a book club podcast. Um, as we talked about before, my kind of my vocation is classical education, specifically oriented towards homeschool. And, um, and uh, so I have a lot of resources on that available uh, through the Close Reads podcast. Um, and if you're a thoughtful Christian reader who's just interested in reading more classics, wants to go deeper in your intellectual life or just kind of thoughtfully engage, uh, you can uh, listen to my podcast, the Close Reads podcast. Um, right now we're reading a book called A Canticle for Leibowitz. There's four of us on the podcast and we read books over the course of a couple of weeks and talk about them. Um, a weekly podcast and then we have a really active social media presence and we're always you know getting to know listeners and then we also provide of our close series we also do events um, so we have uh, conferences and literary retreats um, and so uh, I would recommend you find me there you can also just follow me on Instagram at Heidi White Reads um, and I'll, I keep I keep it updated with my professional endeavors and all that so love to connect with you Yeah, we will definitely provide links to your social media and to the podcast. Like I said before, we obviously kept this conversation very much ordered around uh, liturgy and Advent, but I I definitely want to have you back on to talk more about homeschooling, education, classical education. I think that would be something that many of our listeners would uh, enjoy learning more from you on. So thank you, Heidi, once again for coming on and we'll do it again. Thanks, Andrew. This was really fun. Delightful. I look forward to next time.